This interview is with Eric Drass. And if you remember back to our first podcast with Jonas, do you remember how Jonas describes himself? Jonas, for those just tuning in for the first time, is the founder of Raw Fury and the instigator and creator of The Art of Fury, which is what's behind this podcast. Now, how does Jonas describe himself? Well, Jonas described himself in a really fun way as um, a a reality distortionist, which um, was just really expansive because he sort of explained that when he goes through life, his, his way of putting his mark on the world is by slightly wobbling and changing the things around him and interfering with things you're not supposed to. And we heard those kind of ideas being reflected again in this conversation with Eric, didn't we? We certainly did. I mean, Eric's work seems a little bit mind-bending, actually, (laughs) in that he's really interested in the ways in which humans and machines interact, especially in a social Mm. and digital age, and how new art is created and what is real you know, how, how are we being gamed as well? You know, how as human beings in this world, what is our value? So there was something very much about reality and would we know what is real? That sort of emerges mm. from me when I listen to Eric talking. Yeah, definitely. He was talking specifically about Twitter as well, wasn't he? And how Twitter is is a kind of game um, as we've got onto games a little bit. But like you say, he works with digital machines like AIs and machine learning things and creates original artworks that are sort of critiques of society's power structures and things, but always with that idea of challenging our assumptions about what's real. So, yeah, really cool. Um, we really we really like, we always say this, but we really like chatting to Eric. He was great fun. <laughs> he had a lovely cat that came in as well at one Hopefully. point. <laughs> Hopefully we haven't cut the cat out. It's oh. got such an amazing meow. <laughs> so over to Eric. I've got a room through there where I paint. <clears throat> I open the door and it's even messier than this one. Oh, lovely. I love a studio tour. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. Bonus. Oh, it's a blue light. Don't walk there's in there. So there's a kind of <coughs> conservatory bit full of shit at the back where I paint. And this is my little geek cave. Uh, but the whole thing is hidden behind a, a bookcase. And so I just emerge from this hidden bookcase that swings out. That's brilliant. Does it actually <laughs> swing? Is it, is it on a mechanism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got it built when we rebuilt the house, so it's a, it's actually built in the Fibonacci sequence of squares on the wall, and part of it is a door that secretly swings open to my cave. So what this is, is this is playfulness in real life, Emma. This is like how oh, you yeah. bring it into your actual everyday life. I love that. Having massive envy, actually. We were talking earlier, weren't we, Layla, about lack of space? But I think I could find a way of creating a sort of secret door between me and somewhere else. It's just so that the cats and the dogs and the children and the husband don't find me. Yeah, it's good that, for that. Yeah. So, Eric, we, we're watching you from live from your cubbyhole behind a shelving unit. <laughs> Where are you and what do you do? I'm in Brighton. My name is Eric Drass and also known as Shardcore on the internet. And I'm an artist uh, who makes a bunch of things. I 
paint pictures. I make installations. Um, I have a particular interest in the relationship between humans and machines, and particularly where AI systems come in and start to butt up against uh, human behavior. So my background longer was academic psychology. So I have a kind of long running interest in how humans work. And I'm also, you know, coming from a nerd side. So I have a strong interest in how the machines are working and where those two things meet uh, for me is the uh, interesting patina of current culture. It's a bit that's sitting there and people aren't really looking at it. It's just nice and shiny, but I like to sort of scratch it off and see what's underneath. So does that lead you to feeling hopeful about the future of humanity or not? I'm not overly hopeful about the human race because of climate change and the fact that we're idiots um, who can't think much further than four years ahead. And therefore, I'm not overly hopeful for the long-term survival of the human race. I don't think we're going to move to Mars. I think we're just going to slowly be, you know, driven out by flood or fire or you know, all that sort of shit. So <clears throat> that's one part of it. I'm not overly hopeful about that. Uh, am I concerned about what's going on with culture? Yes, but I'm also less worried about that. I tend to think of culture as the organism itself. So human culture is the thing. Us humans are just, you know, meat bags that instantiate bits of culture and share them between us and evolve culture and nudge it around if overnight we were hit by a you know space laser that wiped our brains we'd wake up in the morning banging rocks right? the culture would be exterminated so the culture is the thing that's alive because there are seven billion of us currently doing it and each of us is doing it differently and each of us is learning and changing and introducing ideas into the culture so the culture itself is constantly evolving so yeah i think culture itself is distinct from humanity Humanity made it, and humanity keeps it alive. But culture is a slightly different organism that, you know, is is it part of all of us. And so, when we look at the weird shit that's going on with culture around manipulated media or AI interactions, we're kind of looking at the culture being changed, and that's impossible to stop. The bit that concerns us is the human reaction to the changes in the culture. So I'm out of step with the culture as a whole, because the culture is all watching Love Island and I'm not, right? So I'm out of sync with it, or the culture is perfectly happy to upload everything onto Facebook and I'm not, you know, there's differences between the culture and that's where you feel the tension. But the culture itself is encompasses all of it and is kind of agnostic in many ways. So do I have fear that culture is turning bad and we are being manipulated? No, we're going to adapt to it, I think. It's just what it is. and that. The culture now includes machines, right? It includes artificial entities, it includes players in the global game that are quite sophisticated. And I know, ask your kids, they're usually pretty savvy to it, right? They're less paranoid than, the, than our generation. If, if cultural artifacts are created by machines, are they still human cultural artifacts or are we looking at a new thing, which is AI generated? <laughs> culture because AI doesn't know that it's involved in culture so is it just a um, secondary tier human thing <laughs> uh, if a tree falls in a forest does anyone hear it 
right? That's kind of what you're talking about. So uh, overnight, my neural networks produced for me several hundred variations on a theme of an idea that I'm looking for. I briefly scanned through them this morning over my cup of tea and went, oh, that one's pretty good. The rest of them will never be seen again, right? They were generated by a machine. Some of them are quite astonishingly beautiful, but there's so many of them that I'll just pick the one I like. And that's where generated content is going, right? Is there's just going to be loads more of it and people are going to care less about it to some extent. You know, what's, what's the stat on people's uh, photos on their phones? You know, that, that none of them are ever looked at, really. Like, statistically, every photo you take is never looked at, you know, maybe once or twice and then forgotten. But the amount of data of stuff that's accrued, humans are doing that all the time. Machines are doing that all the time. It's like, how much do you care? And that's a lot of what my current bit of work is around. It's like, well, what does it take for you to care about one of these things? Mm-hmm. Part of it is it was made by a machine, therefore it's not human, therefore it doesn't count, which I think was your point about are they part of culture? Well, they kind of are, but they're much like the tree falling in a forest. They're part of culture when someone looks at them. Optimistically, they give you more options as an artist. Like They, they give mm. people more things to choose from because they it, it's – no, no effort for a machine to generate a million things. So you can choose choose one, and that might improve things. Might also make things worse. Well, improve is an interesting word. It's change. It will change things. I'm actually giving a talk in a couple of weeks to a copywriting conference about the death of the author and um, GPT three, which is the uh, tran- latest transformer network that generates texts. That is quite frankly astonishing. Um, you can say, uh, write me a page of copy about a toaster in the style of William Blake. And you'll get a page of copy about a toaster, beautifully pastiched William Blake. So as a copywriter, your job is done, right? It's over. In terms of generating the kind of shit that this page is about toasters, machines are going to do that for you, right? That Your job is now over as a creative industry. Now, that doesn't mean you're completely edged out. It means that you're now squished to the very edge of it, which is, well, I'm still a human and I still want to care about toasters. Which of these thousand things that my machine has sprung out is the right one, which one actually still connects to me? So it becomes more curatorial than creative. And that's certainly where I find the kind of astonishing creative you know, synthetic media AI stuff that I play with, it's like, holy shit, that's just made an astonishing Renaissance painting that would take hundreds of hours to generate, and it's spat out for me in five minutes. How do you feel about that? As a painter, how do I feel about that? And generally, it's like, shit. And it's making me question what it is that you really care about, because the fact that it took five minutes and came out of a machine means I don't care about it in the same way than it, that if it came out of someone's hand. And so for me, the artist is being inevitably pushed to this edge of human connection, right? I like that painting because it was made by a human. And I care about the human actually putting the time in with the brush and making his decisions, his or her decisions about it. And that's the last mile of creativity now. And obviously, I'm, as ever, living on the cusp of a horrific future where everything's generated. But it's kind of, if you think about that, 
where, where is there left for an artist to operate? Yeah, where's the value in this piece of work? Are we valuing the thing just because we've decided that it's going to be a token of value and invented a whole economics around that? Or are we saying for a lot of people, NFTs are not, NFTs and generated art are not as valuable because there's less humanity in them in some way? NFTs are an odd case, I think, because they're in this horrific position where art meets the market. Art doesn't doesn't do well when it meets the market. and the market in this case is crazy crypto bros. So it's not your traditional art market by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and it's driven as a asset trading platform. It's a new asset trading platform for people who really care about that stuff. And so long as their magic beans are going up, they, they just love playing in it. And the kind of the artistic value of a lot of NFTs is secondary to their performative value, which is what we're talking about performing on Twitter. They're performing in crypto space by saying, look at me, I've got enough magic beans to buy a whatever is pixel punk. And you all know that that's really fucking expensive. So I'm a big boy. Same thing as buying a Chanel handbag. It's showing off that you have wealth slash power within this system. And it's this weird system of, you know, 20 something, you know, beardy guys, mainly guys sitting in their bedrooms who are living in an entirely different world from the rest of us. So as artists, it's, it's fascinating because shit, people will pay money for my artwork, right? And that's a relatively rare experience for artists, but there's a lot of fear about it because it feels wrong. And the stuff that makes the news is all terrible artistically <laughs> so there is quite a, there's a there's a promising burgeoning scene of people who are investing in the arts art long term because they like the art but there's also a bit of hoping that it's going to be worth more later which comes back to this last mile of humanity right so people who are buying my works at relatively low prices on nft are very much buying into the fact that me as a human is interesting enough and will be around long enough that those earlier you know what i mean they're buying into me the idea of me as artist so there's a you know that's nice but you know i'm not selling for 60 million bucks <laughs> i think it's very interesting the whole idea of death of the author and you know how comfortable we are with that notion of um not being seen as a creator so that's like people are buying into you as the person Going back to the copywriter thing and the writing copy about toasters, uh, people don't tend to read a lot of copy about toasters. Maybe once every 10 years when they want a new toaster, they might have a look. But that stuff needs to exist inside the system of you know, the internet and late-stage capitalism. You have to have a page about your toaster, goddammit, and it has to be full of compelling copies. So let's get a copywriter to write that page. That'd be brilliant. No one ever really looks at that page, much as no one ever really looks at the photos on their photo album, but it needs to exist. It kind of has a function. Most likely, that page will be read more by the search engine bots who are reading the internet than it will by humans. Therefore, that page will accrue a greater score in the game of internet advertising and search engine optimization. And that score has value, right? Someone might click on Morphe Richards rather than Ferguson or whatever for their toaster because that system of gamification is being played out. But the actual 
the actual token piece of content here is a page about toasters that no one's really going to read. So does it really matter if a machine wrote that page about toasters? And it's actually the best page about toasters ever, right, as far as search engines and other machines care about. That's actually kind of what you're doing as a copywriter. So if you get a machine to do that, does that really matter? Right? We're not talking about the works of Shakespeare here. I think the kind of AI creativity at the end of, you know, can there be another Shakespeare versus can they write a good page of copy about toasters? They're, they're very different questions. I think a lot of this content, a lot of kind of generated content fills us with fear because it's like, oh, my God, machines are taking our jobs or they're fooling us or no one looks at it, right? It's, it's machines feeding other machines and the humans are kind of getting marginalized, which again, I think comes back to this, you know, authenticity of the artist. So you're kind of buying into that fellow human because they're the last thing, that's the last thing you can hang on to. <laughs> okay. To bring it back to gaming, I think people playing video games together on, on the internet is a fascinating part of culture. There are there's a, some interesting AI where they've got team players. I've I've read about for game players where you can kind of get your whatever it is Fortnite crew together, and there's now players that have been trained on other players' behaviour and will behave like those players. Right, so you can have a simulated buddy who's very similar to the buddy you want to play with, and I think that's going to be interesting. But I mean, look, you know, esports, right? There's people want to see humans doing a thing, even in the world of gaming, where they're sitting on their headsets in their rooms. There's, there's a huge industry in turning up and cheering for my fellow human. People want that. I think there's a thing about proxy, isn't there? Because if you ask me about friendships I've formed over the years of my billions of hours on Twitter, I feel like I'm never alone and I don't need to always meet those people in the physical world to feel a huge sense of connection. I never feel like I'm going to get bored. You know, so there are things that you can think this has replaced to some degree the need for that physical. I mean, I've met a lot of people through Twitter as well, which then led to work and fun and going out in the world and stuff. But also I think I can get a lot of my needs met, sadly. (laughs) By my digital life, right? So I'm like, actually, you could sort of see further down the line as technology platforms evolve, whether or not I know you're a human being or not is a different matter. I'm assuming you are. I think you are, but I'm going to have to believe that you are, right, for the sake of this. Well, yeah, so it's uh, much like Facebook's algorithm is trying to give you what you think, what they think you need, right? You're kind of, oh. So the stuff that I'm interested in is where the, where the humans and the machines meet, right? So mm. how much am I bringing to the table and how much is the machine bringing to the table? Right, and I look at that artistically, but you could you could ask the same questions of a Zoom call. What is the Zoom call bringing to me? Well, it's bringing an animated picture of you, and I can hear your voice. It's about 40 to 80 milliseconds delayed from what it be, would be in real life, which is fine when I'm babbling and monologuing on. But if the three of us are having a normal Zoomy, chatty conversation, you find you step on each other's toes, right? Because there's this, this disconnect. And so, therefore, I have to make a change in my human behavior to accommodate and stop and wait a little second just to see that that little kind of fight to settle out and see who won in that little thing where everyone spoke at once. 
and then you know the pace of conversational interaction i am doing work right i am doing work to maintain this illusion of a human conversation but i don't consciously do that but i am and that's part of the fatigue right so it may seem like we're having a regular conversation, but it's being mediated by a machine that is introducing these barriers. It's making us only look at each other face on in a little box. It's making us have these delays in audio. It's making us like change our behavior when someone drops out of a call or the internet goes down or, you know, that doesn't happen when I'm in the pub. People's internet doesn't go down. <laughs> I see them buffering and I'm in the middle of a conversation or everyone freezes and I'm talking to myself. Uh, you know, that sort of stuff we're kind of glossing over in the affordances of Zoom. But there's stuff there. There's stuff between the two of us. And so I'm kind of interested about what we bring to the table and what the machine brings to the table and we meet in the middle. I suppose maybe there's a question here, which is, is, is too much curation a bad thing? Is it bad to remove too much of the unpredictable and the slightly intimidating and all these very, you know, if you can tune out all the slight annoyances of life, are we just kind of encasing ourselves in a protective bubble and we're removing all unwanted accidents from life and, and therefore the point of life, possibly? Yes. <laughs> um, but also I think there's, that you're, we're kind of pointing at something about technology here. Um, I'm reminded of, did you see the Jeremy Della documentary about Acid House that was on a few months ago? No, I didn't. Kind of fascinating. It was Jeremy Della talking about Acid House, but he they presented it as a presentation to school kids, to sick formers who were studying history. So he was banging on about Acid House and good old days, blah, 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 blah. But they were also turning to the kids saying, well, what do you think of that? You know, what do you think of that? And there's a great scene where they show, you know, people raving a field and he turns to you and say, well, you know, can you imagine yourself doing that? And the girl in the class saying, no way, because someone would film it. Mm. And I noticed that in my own children, like the, I can't do something stupid because someone might film it and use it to shame me. So that crippling of doing stupid shit in real life is, is a technological thing right there's a there's now a technology that's part of culture that means i can never do something stupid again because someone might whip out a phone and then it's around forever that's really sad it is really sad oh. i think the kind of the freedom of you know being off your tits on it and dancing in a field like I could not imagine doing that because someone might film me dancing in a bad way so the the kind of the uh you know the way that facebook filters have trickled out into real life makeup activities right what what the algorithm has deemed to be a beautiful construction of a face people are now replicating it on their real faces so that they can go out into the real world looking like they do on their instagram filters right there's that shit going on <laughs> it's not all just directly about the device in your hand it's, it has big knock-on effects that thing of freedom what do you see as being counter to that because it isn't there always counterculture to like the prevailing yeah, yeah. So, so is your work touching on countercultural stuff of freedom or well quite a lot of the stuff is about how our freedoms are being compromised so i do quite a lot of work pointing at you know governmental or international abuses of privacy uh, it's that tension between the personal and the uh population level data stuff right 
So it's like, are the, are people spying on me right now to know what I am doing? Probably not. No person is doing that. But algorithms are certainly measuring those data points and feeding them into systems to make models at a population level. Now, a population level could be people in the UK, or it could be uh, middle-aged men in Brighton for that model, and it could be middle-aged men in Brighton who use hair gel. And I think the evolution of uh, the kind of advertising model is going to be much more about trying to read people's moods to reach them at the right point. Now, Facebook is doing research in this area to get a kind of psychological model of the user so that as you're writing your posts, the rate at which you type and the language in which you use and the people in the network you're communicating with gives an indication of your emotional state. Oh, wow. So for an advertiser can go, oh, this person's actually in a slightly sensitive emotional state right now. Let's sell them some booze. Or, so the kind of the, the model may not be specifically of you, but it's close enough to you that it can feel that way. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's so horrible that the greatest interconnection of people and knowledge ever imagined is co-opted by advertising. Would you consider doing, or have you tried doing, other kinds of AI art projects? Year before last, I published the first GPT-2 generated book on paper, as far as I know. Um, so my friend John Higgs, author, was writing a book about the future. And um, I said, well, look, let's just get a machine to write a version of that. So I took the first sentence of each chapter as a seed and then let it go off on one. And I built, I built a slightly new model of GPT-2 that had been trained on all these books. So it kind of had the same vibe as him. And that was fantastic. Like I really, I really delight in machine generated stuff. And I always have. Like I'm like, I like the game of being fooled by it. Or when it fails to fool you properly is when it's exciting. And I say the kind of the latest stuff, the visual stuff I'm playing with is like, oh, actually, it's come way closer to my very closer to the human than the machine. Right? And it feels different, quality different. So yeah, I've done a lot of stuff with text. I recently did a project analyzing the flight data of Gatwick and turning it into music, which is quite interesting to kind of oh, wow. to, to generate the mood of the airport based on the activities of the air. So it was a kind of data transformation rather than an AI thing. But that was kind of fun. It was challenging because it was in the thick of lockdown when we were doing it. So my musical collaborator, I couldn't really see him as much. Um, and also the fucking data was terrible because there were no planes going on in Gatwick. <laughs> so I've got to build this model for like what what airports are normally like. And actually it was just, beep, beep, just, like, just nothing happening. Oh, no. The sound of silence. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So again, you know, how do you how do you transform that data into a thing? How do you get the mood of that, even if there's not much data triggering? It's like, well, you look at the density of activity and go, okay, well, this is the airport's kind of sad now because there's not much going on. So you then have to bring in, well, what does it mean for an airport to be sad? How does that look right is it the number yeah. of bags coming off the plane or is it the number of planes taking off or so yeah there's all sorts of stuff and did you then play that mediums. in gatwick so you've created something like then it's played to passengers in gatwick no uh, this no. We, this was just a project offline kind of proof of concept the, the, the view would be we'd try and score it and do it with an orchestra in gatwick right Amazing. do an algo generative like have a generative score where as the airport is changing through the day 
the score changes and the people in the auditorium with their violins are playing whatever the the airport is feeling. I love that. That's really interesting. And I love the idea of playing the data live. I don't know if that's exactly what you're suggesting, but if you could literally be playing the planes as they take off and land, is that what it is? That was the next dream. So this one was based, obviously based on the data that was coming in. But yeah, the dream would be to get some decent improv musicians and say, okay, look, here's the score. And then when the next one comes up, you don't quite know what it is, you know, the, but the chord sequence is being generated by the, by the data coming in. Part of the idea is that you could tune into the website and go, how's Gatwick feeling before you leave, right? What kind of what kind of experience of Gatwick Airport I'm going to have? It's like, oh, it's sounding pretty harmonious and happy and just bubbling along, or it's like screeching fucking horns and chaos. Like, oh, I'll stay at home. I don't want to go <laughs> like just, uh, just listening to it should give you an idea of what how the airport is feeling. On Twitter, at least, I could be in a game. I could be in a multiplayer game, and you how would I know, and all game. that stuff. And how much has my behaviour changed over the last billions of hours that I've been on there as a result of being in a games engine? What well, feels like a games engine? And then I like the idea that there's some kind of yeah. shadowy, lizard-eyed people manipulating <laughs> me because that's quite fun to think about as well. So I'm like, if that was the intent, and, you know, are they anywhere near what they want us to be doing? Uh, so dystopic reality all that shit so where you seem to be sitting in my mind anyway is that kind of like how do we know what's real kind of my hashtag end of days which i like to use almost daily it's like signs of the end of days is a yeah flippantly use uh pointing are we being gamed maybe this is the question are we part of a massive game absolutely twitter is a game right twitter is a game of uh social performance right you are um, transmuting yourself through a very narrow bandwidth channel to present yourself to anonymous hordes who are also operating through this narrow bandwidth. And it's performative, right? It's, uh, look at me, I've thought of something witty, or look at me, I think Boris Johnson's a wanker, or, you know, whatever it is, it's, it's look at me, right? It's the same reason that, you know, people like me have stupid haircuts right it's it's a it's a thing that you do to draw attention to say take note of me and that's it's a game and so the game is scored by likes and retweets and replies um and on top of that is obviously the system of twitter itself which is trying to make money out of that so um they interject ads into your stream now, that's how they're making money out of it. They're somewhat failing to make money out of it, but that's their intent is to make money out of it. They also, they've introduced what they think you ought to see. Now, behind that is where the kind of scary shit exists, right? So working out what it is you think you ought to see and what adverts they can throw into your feed, that's where they're making their money, right? And that's where the algorithm is coming in and potentially manipulating you in this sinister you know, reptilian way that you're concerned about. But the motivation is... Is it purely is, money? Is it, is it literally, it's how do we make money? Or do you well, think it's so, more ideological? Or is that the ideology in itself? So I've explained the kind of the Twitter side of it. So that's how they're trying to make money out of it. And they want to get engagement. They want people to turn up. They want people to 
engage with their platform so they see more ads, which is why they kept Donald Trump on there forever, right? It's because Twitter without Donald Trump is nothing, right? And it's just to a lot of people, right? So they're bottom line. But the the issues that you're pointing out, the same one that you know you saw in Cambridge Analytica, is uh, manipulating that system. So manipulating it with bot armies or the classic one on Twitter, where the same message or variations of that message will be repeated out across thousands of accounts to make it look like this is an important thing. And you know, people generally wag their finger and blame the Russians, but it's technologically relatively trivial. So you can give the impression there's loads of activity that the conversation is moving in this direction, but that's all simulated. And that can nudge people a bit. In terms of actually engaging with bad actors, currently, I my sense is that it's still humans peddling a script who are trying to engage people. Um, I've done a bunch of work around botifying that. But the botifying, uh, sort of a Turing test style, would you know if you're actually conversing with a human being or is that actually a bot? Are we at that level yet with it, do you think? Oh, absolutely. And the real question is, do you care? (laughs) So it affects the people who do care. Those people are easy marks in Twitter. So, hey, I'll come and talk to you about Donald Trump. And that's where you send a bot in to try and nudge people. I think the people who are kind of savvy with the system don't generally get as easily sucked in, but they get sucked in with, you know, endless arguments. I mean, I, I hear a lot of people, people say, oh, Twitter's terrible. It's a hellscape of argument and dissent. And my Twitter isn't really. I, I follow a bunch of weird freaks and art accounts. And yeah, there's a bit of political stuff. But it's, I, don't, I never feel the urge to engage and argue on Twitter. I never see something that provokes me to have a long chain of arguments. I, that's, that's, the game doesn't do that for me. But the game of showing me something interesting every few seconds, yeah, I'm fucking hooked into that one. You know, I'm programmed neurologically to be into that one. to ask you how do you feel that playfulness can be subversive if you think it can be um i would equate playfulness with creativity they're very more or less the same thing so uh creativity is the only way that culture can advance and in a culture that is effectively eating itself at the moment you know, kind of post, in the, the broadest sense, because of postmodernism, we're just constantly self-referential. But there's also this other, this other layer that we are now uh, interacting with systems that have learnt from us and have learnt from the past. So I can have my AI machine say, "Paint me a painting like Francis Bacon." I can do that because it's seen all of Francis Bacon. Paint me a painting that no one's ever seen before. It can't do because it's only ever seen everything that's happened. So playfulness is about creating something new, finding something new that wasn't there before, 
And that's the only way that culture can advance, right? The only way you can move forward is by playing with something, seeing what happens. Thanks for listening to Art of Fury, the podcast. We really hope you're enjoying it. If so, please go to iTunes and give us a quick rating and review on there. It helps other people to find us. Remember, you can find us on Twitter as well. We are at Art of Fury pod on there. So please come and join the conversation. The music you've been listening to throughout this episode is from The Longest Road on Earth, which is a Raw Fury game, and the composer and performer in the music is Bea. See you next time. <laughs> All right, excuse me one second. I well, thought I was a baby, up. and then I was like, you look at the ground. He won't shut up and please on my lap. Come on. Oh, it sounds like a baby. Come on, Wolfie. Wolfie. Come on. Come on. <laughs> so noisy. <laughs> there we go. All right, I'll, I'll introduce failed. Wolfie just for the sake of the call. Oh, Wolfie. Gorgeous. He will now probably shut up because he's on my lap. Bless.